Hello, everybody. Welcome to Quantum Witch Cafe, your safe place to talk about anything strange, paranormal, UAP, UFOs, if you're super fancy like that. Um, before we get into our amazing guest today, I want to say thank you to anybody in the chat. I see Deb. I see John. Um, I don't anticipate a lot of people joining because I'm never on early, but I actually like being on early because morning is a nice time for me. So... Um, also, thank you to anybody listening now, later, um, on audio only, on Anomalous Podcast Network. Leave your, feed, leave your feedback, share, like, subscribe, all that YouTube stuff. And um, I'm going to introduce our guest now. We have the amazing Jeff Kripal today from this, this superhuman himself, or as Mitch Horowitz referred to you as the other day on Twitter, uh, Professor X. <laughs> so- <laughs> That's sweet. If you're if you're a comic book nerd, like you know, you can't. If you're not a comic book nerd, you just need to leave the channel. I'm just kidding. You know, um, we're nerds here, so we we love that reference. Like when he said that, I was like, yes, <laughs> especially when it comes into superhumanities. And right before we came on, I I accidentally talked to my guest before we go on and start getting into a conversation. I'm like, no, we need to save this. I was telling him that I can't have a book without treating it like a textbook. Uh, so I was showing him my sticky notes, and you see his library back there, guys. So this is a serious book guy, but he lives in his books too. So anybody that's like, you can't be doggy in your books and stuff, like, you know, you have to mark your journey along the way. And you were about to tell me that you do that too. Um, I'm not going to take a lot of time to introduce Jeff and his bio. It's in the description. If you don't know who Jeff is, his website's in the description. It's a long bio. I don't want to take his time with all that when you can just read it. I want to get into the questions. I want to get into the book and all that good stuff. So I may have had a little bit too much caffeine, so I'm talking really fast, but it's okay. (laughs) So Jeff, you were saying that you like to destroy your books as well. Yeah. So I, I've struggled with this over the years too. I have, I have actually thousands of books and the first thing people always ask me when they come into my, my office at, at the university is, have you read all those books? They're, you know, they're nervous. And uh, I always tell them, of course not. I, a library is a sign of, a sign of, uh, oh, there you go. A library is a sign of, des- of desire, not of accomplishment. Yeah, and that that's true. And it makes people feel better. And it makes me feel better for not having read all those books. But when I really, really, really want to know a book, I have to underline it. I have to bend the pages. I have to write in the margins. I have to physically consume it. And I've struggled with that over the years because that, of course, <laughs> it doesn't destroy the book, but it 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 seriously, seriously marks it up. Um, but I've worked in people's archives, and I'm trying to figure out their mind and how they thought and read. And I have to tell you, marginalia and destroying books is a invaluable thing if you're trying to figure someone else out. Right. You have to behave when you're reading the archives, right? You can't be doggy earing like <laughs> No, but you can you can take notes, of course, and you 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 often end up quoting them in, in the notes. So you wanna you wanna well actually I don't want to take any of it home. It that would just make it for me and that that would be a waste. Um but yeah yeah so I, I'm all for it. I there are books I don't destroy, by the way. <laughs> like what, like I, a like a antique books or yeah, okay yeah, yeah, yeah obviously yeah I'm not gonna get like some cool 
hundred year old book and start dog earring, putting hot pink sticky notes in it and cat ears and you know. Well, I, I think hot <laughs> hot pink sticky notes are just fine, Priscilla. I think I think when you start bending books and writing it, uh, uh, writing in an old book, that's, that's oh yeah, that's different. Yeah, the respect for books nowadays. Like, I see people getting like, "Look, at, I found this old thrifted book," and they like cut it up and like stain it, or like they mod hodgepodge like the sides. And I'm like, "Don't do that to an old book." Like, <laughs> go buy. I don't know. Like, just people need to start making fake books for that because we cannot be destroying books. It's just, it's ridiculous. Like, you guys, like, obviously, I write in my books, but I wouldn't do that to an old book. You know what I mean? Something that's not replaceable. Like if I really wanted a pristine copy of Superhumanities, I can order another one. Right. But if, if it's like a hundred year old text or document, you cannot get another one. And no. I'm just a weirdo. Like I feel like all the books, like think about how many people have touched those books and and just have you know, lived in them as well. You know, that's the other thing. This will get us into the weird. I Some of our donors to our archives for the impossible, particularly Jacques Vallée, by the way, has what I would call a psychometric understanding of archives. And, and what he means by that is, you know, people have touched those documents and they've put their their mind and their soul in those, those pieces of paper. And so when the researcher touches the paper and picks it up, there's something of that of that presence that can that can pass on. And so there's a real reverence for the physical object or the actual document. And I I think we often lose that in our in our digital world. Yes, absolutely. It's nice to have all your books on your Kindle or your iPad or your phone, but at the same time, there's nothing like a real book. You know what I mean? Yeah, they're not real. I order like Kindle books is so, uh, my husband's probably going to hear this because he's in the next room, but so I don't keep getting books in the mail. (laughs) So sometimes I'll like get a Kindle book because I'll be like, no evidence with the Kindle book. You know what I mean? (laughs) But then if I really like it, it'll show up later. The crime scene is is not a crime scene if it's a Kindle book. Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) I need like a book patron because I I had to really control myself. Um, So like when somebody, whenever like an author sends me a book or I give somebody gifts me a book, it's like, I just, it's one of the most coolest things you can give somebody, but that's just me. I'm a nerd. What do I know? <laughs> well, you, know you know a lot, and nerd, nerds are good. Nerds are great. I love nerds. I was showing um, your poster for your your super humanities class to like my son one night because um, when I read them their little kid book and then I go read my book, and it was kind of funny because I will read from the book. You know, obviously, like some things I will leave out, like they don't need to. I don't want to expose them to like suicidal ideations yet, stuff like that. They're three and five, but I liked the whole superhuman, um, superhumanities thing. I think it's important for people to start learning that early mm-hmm. because I feel like with my generation and other generations before that, people were not taught um, how wonderful they were and how yeah. deep their existence is in the fabric of reality. So um, I try to teach them all the weird stuff, which brings me to my first book question. And if you guys are curious, I keep waving it around. But I did a po- Twitter post and I said, show me your cripal. And a bunch of people posted their their superhumanities or some of your books. That was kind of fun. <laughs> I have to take some pictures of the thread if I can find it again. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So what made you ride, write this particular book? You've written all sorts of amazing books. Um you, and they're all awesome and weird in their own way. And I mean that with the why, like the the meaning of weird, like not like how people say, oh, you're a weirdo now. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, what made you decide to write this book, Superhumanities or The Superhumanities? 
Yeah, yeah. There's a couple things. Um, they'll sound nerdy, but 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 they're important. Um, so I've been working at a dean's office for four years now. I'm a, an associate dean, and and I say that not not to sound like a CV, but to place this book. Um, I help oversee about 170 faculty in a, in a school of humanities at a research university. And I listen every day to what they're doing and what they're worried about and the students and all these things. And I, you know, I've just grown really concerned over the, over many years, over decades, actually, Priscilla, Th this book started actually in, in, in the 1980s, uh, really. And, and I've been writing about this for 25 years. I think Put it really bluntly, I think teachers who teach in colleges and universities, I'm sure the same is true of high schools and, and elementary schools, are far stranger and far weirder than we give them credit for, and that they're human beings. And because they're human beings, they're weird, they're superhuman beings. And a lot of times the books and the texts they're teaching, the authors that we revere and that we share with our children and our students every day, those ideas emerged from altered states of consciousness and from strange experiences and from superhuman states. And then they get coded in these books. And then we teach that at the college or university or high school or whatever it is. And I just wanted to remind people that, well, not remind them, I guess I wanted to provoke them or, or encourage them that the human that we teach in our books and in our ideas has always been the superhuman. And I've also been grown really concerned that students and parents and the public don't understand what the humanities are and have dismissed them. And politicians are trying to defund them in some cases. And I think that's a real mistake. Um, for a lot of reasons. And, and I'd say that not to serve myself or to pad my own CV, but because I think it has a real effect on society and a kind of long-range cultural. I think some of our greatest ideas were hum human humanistic ideas, things like democracy, and human rights, and intellectual liberty, and religious liberty. And all of these things are, are ideas that nerds came up with and put in books and, and often have superhuman origins, by the way. And, and I, you know, there's a joke. There's also a joke that runs through the book about, this goes back to your kids, the little kids sitting around saying, what do you want to be when you grow up? And no, no kid ever says I want to be a, <laughs> a professor of the humanities. I mean, nobody, if that, if a kid says that we get really worried really fast. Right. Right. And also because you're like, Oh man, you're going to go down that rabbit hole. I, <laughs> I love how you kind of like almost like tease the humanities a little in your book saying like, we're, we're here to like break it, like break everything and pick everything apart and criticize in, in an intellectual way, not criticize like to be mean, but analyze, you know? Yeah. We help people understand that they live in a world or a story that may not be working so well. And how, how does one step outside that story and think about it and then come up with a better story? That's essentially the, the skill set that the book is trying to uh, trying to communicate. So I did find the picture of the uh, the mutant, um, your poster for your class. So it's super cool. It's comic book. Like, have you ever seen a class 
with advertising like this. And also <laughs> there's a lot of meaning in in the character, right? The, mm -hmm. the chosen superhero. Um, would you mind talking a little bit about that and how that came about? Because I think it's important for people to understand um, how you're building this into something. Yeah, so that, that poster actually is very significant. I, I think it's the kind of the origin of, of the book actually in many ways. You, you can't you can't tell by just holding it up, but there's a there's a logo at the a banner at the bottom of that poster that says rice, and then generally it says rice humanities. And what I had the artist do is is replace humanities with superhumanities. So it actually says rice superhumanities um, on the banner in a very official looking way, by the way. And the course is called Mutants and Mystics. Uh, it's on the paranormal and science fiction and on race and sexuality and gender and how all these things have intertwined over the years, over the decades, really. And so I'm using science fiction and popular culture to help um, people question all of these things, um, but also understand that there are paranormal experiences and events at the core of these kinds of questions and these this kind of creativity. Um, a man named David Metcalf made that poster. He's a very gifted artist and really interested in the paranormal. Uh, and he, he actually created the poster for me. Uh, I asked him, of course, to do it. Um, it. You know, the poster has a question, are you one of the new mutants? Um, so, and, and it's a serious question, actually. Are, are, are you ready to change the world? Are you, are you a regular human or are you a superhuman? <laughs> let's, let's, let's ask this question. And so I really, I really, the poster is very serious, but it's also playful, and I hope I hope it grabs people's attention. Yes, absolutely, it it does. Um, and you wouldn't like you said the superhumanities, the Rice University superhumanities logo at the bottom. Yeah, like I didn't notice it at first until I think I was reading the text, and I was like, oh my goodness, that is super low key and very, you know. Um, <laughs> you, it, he did a great job. You can't even tell that it's not. You just. No. Like your mind registers it as rice humanities and then you see super humanities. So right. um, one of the things that you bring up is sort of like a, the state of people's mental health right now. Um, and one of the quotes from the book is, uh, no wonder so many of us are on drugs. We are depressed because we are deep down perfectly sane. We are sad because we once saw. We are disgusted because we know better and more of this. Um, can you speak a little bit about that? Because that quote, when I read it, I was just like, I think it was in the intro. And I was reading this intro and I was just getting so pumped and like moved the whole time. And I was, and I had to like highlight that one because um, it really, for some reason, it hit home to me. And I know it probably hit home to a lot of people. Yeah. I, um, when I, when I look around, when I, when I see people in the street or when I interact with people, I mean, there's a kind of sadness um, there's a kind of what I would call a depression that kind of runs through the whole culture. Um, part of it is, I think, part of it's not necessary and, and healthy. We, we've sort of, we've, we have, as a culture, woken up to a lot of, uh, of the unjust and, and really horrific aspects of our own histories and our own assumptions. Part of it is that we have flattened ourselves and we have become essentially just social animals or political animals that live for a time and then die. And I think we live in a, a very materialistic world. And I, and I don't mean that by 
I don't, I don't mean materialistic as in the sense of just going to the mall every day and buying shit. I mean, I mean, materialistic in the sense we think that all there is is matter and that matter's dead and not sentient or conscious and that we're just essentially AI machines. We, we think we're conscious, but we're really not. I mean, that's a fundamentally depressing worldview. And if you live in that world, and, and by living in that world, I, mean, I don't mean you think about those ideas every day, but you just assume that they're true, you are going to be sad. You're going to be depressed. There's not going to be any meaning in life. There's not going to be anywhere to go or anything to, to do. And, um, and I, think, I think intellectuals are partly responsible for that, Priscilla. I, I think we have woven a pretty depressing story over the last 40 or 50 years. And whether, you're, whether that's a scientist or a historian or a philosopher or a teacher of English literature or whatever it is, it's, it's, if you push people, like, what, what the hell are we doing here? What, what is the meaning of life? They don't have an answer, and, and often they'll ultimately say there is none. Well, yes, <laughs> that's a good reason to be depressed right there. And um, and so the book, what the book's trying to do is not give people an answer. I I I don't want to say this is the meaning of life because I don't personally I don't know what that answer is, but I do know that human beings have had a lot of answers to that, and that as a culture and as a global community, we can talk about that and sort of move towards something in the future that isn't one thing or isn't one answer, but it's much more positive and perhaps even ecstatic or or um, cosmic which is what the book is about. Yes, and I I like books and I feel like in this topic of we see this in like the deeper topics, the seekers end up in this position that nothing they read is going to give them the answer. And you could have this crazy meaningful experience with some being and still be left with crazy amounts of questions and no answers even though it was one of the most mm. profound things in your life. It triggers something that can't be explained. And um, you talk about that, too, in the book about how um, there's a quote, and it's in here. It's in one of my sticky notes. So you had talked about the, this, these sorts of things are not measurable. Um, these events that happen to people are not measurable because we don't have the language or for it. You know, um, so I thought that was I, that's in my list of questions and I had jumped ahead before we get into that. I wanted to talk about a little bit um, of the concept of the news now. is now tell me how to say it. Noose or new? Oh, noose. Yeah. N-O-N-O-N-O-U-S. Yes. Noose. Yes. And it's kind of funny and it's a weird synchronicity. I'm taking a philosophy of science class and I was just reading that was one of the topics because we were talking about Aristotelian science and um, it was mentioned and it kind of grabbed the term grabs me because I had never heard it before. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, that kind of is a, a cool word, but I don't think enough people know it. And I don't think enough people have heard it that would be listening to this and interested in your work. So yeah. can you explain the news to people and kind of its role um, in life and exploration? Yeah. I mean, so when most people think of the mind, they think of cognition. They, they think thoughts. <laughs> you know, that, that um, thinking is about essentially talking in the head and putting 
um, logical syllogisms together in your head. You know, this is so, this is so, therefore this is so. It's a kind of straight linear causal thinking. And the ancient Greeks, which is what really helped produce a lot of Western society, understood that. You know, that was that was dianoia. Uh, that was what we call dialectical thinking. I mean, it was it was analytical. It was it was thought. But there was this other form of of thought, this other form of mind that they called nous, that became really important to to later thinkers, which was which was, I think I, we can best translate it as consciousness. And, and what I like to say is consciousness is not cognition. You know, you can, you can be in consciousness and you can be aware, but you may not be thinking. Those are two completely different things. And sometimes consciousness produces new thought. And this was, this was the idea that what a real intellectual is in the ancient Greek sense isn't someone who can think thoughts really well, it's someone who understands that mind has a deeper source in noose, in consciousness or awareness, and that there are different forms of thought, there are different forms of, of awareness, and that they're all related to one another. And so that's that's what I was trying to get at with that that Greek Greek word. I'm just trying to tell people that not every culture has confused cognition and consciousness. And I think we have, by the way, Priscilla. You know, when people, when computer scientists tell me that computers are going to become conscious, I'm like, oh man, you just made a big mistake. <laughs> you you just confuse consciousness and cognition. I, I, sorry, that's just not true. And, uh, and, and, you know, so I think it's a really serious question. Um, and I'm just trying to say lots of our, lots of our ancestors uh, in the past have understood noose and we don't. Yes, absolutely. I feel like we're trying to get back to that. I feel like I call us the seekers because there's so many things you could call yourself. Like, you know, mm -hmm. I consider myself a witch, but the more I go down the rabbit hole, I realize that all these things we call ourselves sort of dissolve into oneness, you know, yeah, which is very hermetic, like all, you know, <laughs> but at the same time, it's also physics. If you think about it yeah. um, on a smaller level, like, like the immeasurable level um, and consciousness sort of operates in it at that sort of level as well. Well, you know, I mean, so my constant harping on the weird and the paranormal is, is precisely because of the seeking aspect. I, I, I really do think now um, that paranormal events happen to people to push them out of their paradigm. I think there's something inherently seeking about these experiences to put it in the terms that you you mentioned earlier and and that's why i'm interested in the paranormal it's not because i believe everything or um i'm naive it's because actually i don't believe anything and i think these things happen to put everything in a question mark and to turn us into seekers and i think that's a good thing I, I think the the worldviews that our ancestors lived in and created are are often very helpful, but they're often very destructive, and and we simply don't find them plausible anymore. And this is where science comes in. You know, physics comes in. I, I think all of those things are like really, really important and are helping to shape our new world. But I don't think there any of them are sufficient. You know, when I talk, to, I talk to physicists. I know physicists. I, I mean, they're my friends. I know them well. And a good physicist will, will tell you, the first thing 
physicist will tell you is, yeah, physics ain't, ain't going to get us there. I mean, it'll 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 mess up what we think, but it's not. It's it's a kind of knowledge that just isn't isn't what we need. Isn't isn't enough. It's it's a third person. It's it's mathematical. It's objective. It's not it's not about consciousness per se. Yes, it does, and it, and it depends on how you think about it. Because when I when I read about um, like theoretical physics, it really makes me wonder. But I also am not one hundred percent scientist, you know. So no, no, um, it's a not. problem no, no, to be no, a little no. bit of both because you're always fighting with yourself. You know what I no, mean? Nor am I, Priscilla. But but they're not us either. I mean, <laughs> I mean, this is the first thing you learn, you know, or maybe the second thing that everybody has the slice of of reality but people are limited and and disciplines like physics or chemistry or frankly history or philosophy or anything it, it really limits you it opens some things up and it closes other things down yes for sure because then you if you you said something at the end of james iandoli's show the other day that like, don't believe your beliefs and that was like so important for <laughs> people to hear because sometimes we feel like i feel like what is wrong with me i'm like now i don't believe anything and i viewed it for a while i viewed it as like a, a regression <clears throat> but it's more of an expansion when you stop believing one thing and start coming up to like new possibility before yeah i think i don't know i i remember talking to james of course but i i say that a lot and what i <clears throat> I mean, what I, what I try to help people with is I don't really care what your beliefs are. Just don't believe them because you actually believe them, which means you're not your beliefs. You know, if, if you have a story, you have a story or you have a religion. It's not you. And to the extent that we confuse ourselves with our stories or our religions or our beliefs, I, I think we, we, do our, we do everyone a... a an, an injustice, and we, we help create a, a worse world, actually. We need stories, but I don't think we should, I don't think we should believe them. I mean, if that makes any sense. Right, right. Um, you bring up um, Nietzsche a lot in your book, and yeah. it's funny because I found, like, as a preteen, I found one of his books at a yard sale, Beyond Good and Evil, Yeah. and I was in Catholic school at the time. <laughs> So I brought it to Catholic school and they're like probably freaking out. Like she's losing her way. So they made me go see a counselor because of that. <laughs> um, yeah. I was questioning too many things. I wasn't getting an A in my Bible studies. And, and then I had, they find this book in my backpack or they see me shuffling around in my backpack and see this Nietzsche book at Catholic school. And then the counselor was, you, you're too young to be reading this. And, um, I feel like it was funny that I accidentally stumbled across that as a female in a Catholic school and as um, Diana would joke around a short female because, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, but there are, you know, he did bring a lot to this concept of um, the superhuman, right? Yeah. And I'm not going to try to say the German word for Ubermensch. Okay. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about his role in that and the chessboard analogy and how he's floating above 6,000 feet on a rock, or, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, 
so I think, you know, Nietzsche's just, he's one really good example of what I'm trying to get across in this book. I mean, the, the argument of the book is that the core thinkers of the humanities were actually talking about the superhumanities. They were, they were about, if you think of, if you think of the humanities generally existing on a flat social plane, there's this vertical or third dimension that um, is seldom talked about or acknowledged. And, you know, I, I, I didn't read Nietzsche, Priscilla. I mean, I wasn't the weird kid in high school that, that you were. Um, there was no Nietzsche in my backpack, by the way. Um, I, I, remember, I remember being in a Catholic seminary and one of the monks doing his PhD on Nietzsche, by the way, and he had that classical big picture of Nietzsche with the handlebar mustache. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, on his uh, wall. I mean, this was a Catholic monk, by the way. I didn't think of anything of it because I didn't know anything about Nietzsche. Um, I read a lot of Freud. I love Freud, um, who was a real um, fan of Nietzsche, by the way. But I never really read Nietzsche until about five years ago. And I read Nietzsche because my graduate students lives were being completely changed by reading this person. And I was like, what's going on here? And by graduate students, I don't mean, I mean a number of graduate students, both male and female, uh, by the way. Yeah. Um, and Nietzsche, of course, is famous for his misogyny. This is something Diana right. will tell you. That's funny. Tell you yeah, that's why yeah. it's funny. But like he has, he has other things to offer that you talk about too. He has problems with women. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> well, yeah, but that's a, you know, <laughs> yeah. Freud probably figured it out when he was yeah. reading this. <laughs> but when you read, when you uh, so when I read Nietzsche, I, I inherited this Nietzsche who was this angry kind of atheist <laughs> who declared God is dead and you know, was a bad, bad dude, bad dude. And I read him a few years ago because of my graduate students. I was like, who are these people reading? This is not, this is not the person I'm reading. Um, there's a kind of ecstatic, um, enthusiastic, um, visionary quality to this writing. And he clearly did say God is dead and he meant it. And he was a big critic of religion, but he was also clearly doing religious things in a kind of post-religious way. And he had this idea of the evolving Ubermensch, the superhuman, who his image was there was this tightrope, and on one side was, was the ape, and on the other side was the Ubermensch or the Superman, and the human being was in the middle. And so we were, as a species, we're walking on this rope, and we're, we're transitional. We're, we're not permanent. We evolved out of out of the the ape, and we're evolving towards the superhuman. And he gets picked up in some really nasty ways. Priscilla, um, his sister in particular, sells him to the Nazis and the fascists in Europe. You know, long after he's dead and and unable to speak for himself. By the way, he hated anti Semites. And he was extremely critical of nationalism. So he he didn't like his sister, by the way, either. Um, but his sister really defines Nietzsche for much of the 20th century in Europe. And he gets he gets painted as this fascist um, Nazi kind of uh, intellectual, but he wasn't. Um, and he also gets picked up in America, by the way, from 1903 on. American playwrights and intellectuals and social activists are are reading Nietzsche and talking about him and loving him. And this is where 
Superman comes from, by the way. You know, the, 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 the guy in blue tights with the, the right, red tape. Right. <laughs> Created by two Jewish kids, by the way, in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, so, I, you know, Nietzsche is just a really good example for me of what I'm talking about, that, that the humanities are really the superhumanities. And can we please... Can we please say that? Can we please read these people more deeply? Because I think it really will matter. And, mm -hmm. and I'm not a Nietzschean, Priscilla. I'm not saying no. everything Friedrich Nietzsche no. says is right. <laughs> I'm just saying, no, let's let's talk. Let's have this conversation. That that's what I that's what I thought education was about, was was having a conversation about these ideas. Um so especially the challenging ones, right? Because like you said, he has like a reputation and people just you know, it, um, they just, they don't, they read, like, you can't do like a Nietzsche for dummies. You have to actually read the work. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, some of the stuff you read is going to be like repulsive. And then you have to rise above that and see, okay, well, what about this is catching people like to, you did? To go, to go superhero on you, to go geeky. <laughs> if, if you really want to know what Nietzsche is about, watch the X-Men movies. Okay. Oh, sweet. I just got a homework assignment to watch the X-Men movies, guys. Oh, my from, gosh. From Jack Bible. The, the, the figure, I love those movies. The figure of Magneto, that's Nietzsche. Oh, that makes so much sense. Th that is Nietzsche. I've watched those movies many times, so yeah, and, that makes total sense. Professor X or Professor... So Professor Xavier is this liberal, humanistic professor that who believes that mutants and and non-mutants can live together in in harmony and magneto is this <laughs> angry uh uh german jew uh who's who's uh you know um ancestors were were killed in the holocaust and he just thinks fuck them let's let's wipe the humans off the face of the earth and take it over for the mutants now that's not nietzsche but 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 at the X-Men really play out this notion yes. of the Ubermensch, and they're debating it. They're debating it through the characters of, of Xavier and Magneto, but also through all of the all of the X-Men and X-Women who, you know, none of them are normal, Priscilla. They they right. all they all they all have disabilities or they all have super abilities, they have different genders and sexualities. And I mean, I to me the X-Men is is a is a very good. Uh, modern mythology of kind of where we're at. Um, but it has these earlier roots in people like Friedrich Nietzsche that that I think are often not realized. Right. I've always had like a, a soft spot for Magneto because he's, it's like he means well, but he's killing everybody. So but, <laughs> one, of the, one of my students who, um, who, who really converted me to Nietzsche, he, he wrote a paper called Magneto was right. And um, you know, I'll let I'll just let that sit. I, yeah, that's, I like that. Though. I mean, it's it's interesting. That's yeah. that's what people need to do. They need to read things that don't sound like they should read them. If that makes yeah. any sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's. Um, I wanted to ask you about this concept. The I wait before we move on the X Men thing. Yes, because we have to think that there's not a lot of superheroes. I think that they play out the internal conflict of the superhuman are the superheroes well it's it's more realistic you know what i mean yeah um because of there we have some like like superman would never you know what i mean like he would never think about doing something bad but we with his gifts but if there was a bunch of supermen they would be more like the 
superheroes on the X-Men or the mutants on the X-Men, there would be some that would want to help humans and there would be some that would want to destroy humans. I right. think it's so I like that. And also I um I actually went into labor in the movie theater watching one of the Wolverine movies. So really Where, yeah. what what movie was it? <laughs> Logan. <laughs> Okay, that's that's actually one of my favorite movies. Actually, <laughs> I didn't get to watch it in the movie theater because I was um, pregnant, and I was like, "Did you ever watch it? Did you?" I did. did yes, I watched it. I'm a huge Wolverine fan, so. So the last <laughs> the last scene of that movie um, is very significant to me. If if you remember, uh, the the grave, um, it has a, a simple kind of um, X on or simple kind of cross on it. And the, the young character comes and takes it and moves it, you know, and turns it into an axe. And to me, that's the that's the transformation right there of, of the myth, that we we're moving out of a, a Christian myth and we're moving into a, a mutant myth. And and of course, the letter for Christ or Christianity was an X, by the way, Christos. I mean, it, it's it's an old, it's an old, old Christian theme as well. So but it's a new mythology, I think. It's a fundamentally new mythology. Yes, very exciting. I, I like how we just talked about X-Men. I had no intention of it, but it was perfect. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I want to talk about this theory of <clears throat> Gnosticism and Gnostic contagion. This yeah. is another thing that I feel <clears throat> people are talking about um, in the communities, like the UFO communities, the paranormal communities, the, the seeker communities. <clears throat> the people that question how things work, that they don't have the words for it. So when I when I read Gnostic Contagion in your book, it really grabbed me because it really explains so much of the what's going on. <clears throat> yeah. So that's Peter O'Leary. Uh, Peter is a, um, a dear friend. He's a scholar of what I would call poetry and, and mystical experience in Chicago. And he's a perfect example <coughs> of what I'd call the superhumanities. What Peter does is he takes poets and literary figures and he shows that they transmit this gnosis, this sort of direct knowledge of reality or the divine, and that when people then pick up those poems or pick up those pieces of literature, there's a contagious effect. That state of mind or that form of gnosis or, or direct knowledge can be can be experienced again. And, um, you know, contagion is a powerful metaphor for us today, you know, after COVID. We know what a, we know what a epidemic is and how um, scary it is. And contagion is, Gnostic contagion is something, it's something positive, but it's also something scary to people because you don't want to be infected with something <laughs> but you you Especially might want now the people, yeah. like the, it's like a trigger word for people now yeah but not the gnostic contagion is essentially this idea that poems and books and ideas can carry this altered state of consciousness or this altered state of mind and that when human beings pick them up and and reenact them in their own their own persons that this can happen again um it's 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 you know we're going back to the bibliophile or the, the nerdy <laughs> aspect of us books are um books are dangerous priscilla oh my goodness you can't read a book without <laughs> wanting more because i could literally take like mm -hmm. um i'm just going to use you and mitch horowitz right now because that's what i'm reading at the moment besides my philosophy of science book um you 
both put an emphasis on footnotes. Yeah. But that's just the footnotes. And then there's a whole like bibliography. Yeah. Like, can you imagine if you were like, if you took one book and bought all the books that were referenced in the book that you're reading? Yeah. But sorry, as you were saying, books no, I, are dangerous. I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't imagine that because <laughs> I actually write those footnotes and I have those books. I, I can well imagine what this is this is like. And it's a it's a rabbit hole inside a rabbit hole inside a rabbit hole to use an Alice in Wonderland image. And and Mitch Mitch is fantastic on this because he he himself is a nerd and a geek and has read all these books. And so when he cites things, he knows what he's citing. And you can kind of see a well, you're not kind of. You can see a kind mm. of contagion in in Mitch's books that I think I think is wonderful. Mm. I, I mean, I'm a Mitch Horowitz fan. I read those books and I assign them and talk about them. And, um, he's doing he's doing real work in in the in the culture. Oh, absolutely. He mm. was just at the um, the inquiry to the anomalous in New York, yeah. so I got to introduce him, and I was super nervous because I have always been interested in the occult, you know? Yeah, so yeah. It, I feel like finding your work and his work, <clears throat> you know, um, has really helped me feel less crazy about being <laughs> crazy. Like, yeah. like it's just, there's so much to reality and you really emphasize, like you both really emphasize that. So that's why I respect you both as authors and also as you are very inspiring the way you guys write about this. So, um, <laughs> So just thank you for that. <laughs> well, that's again, that's um we're part of that, of course, Priscilla. It's not that Mitch Horowitz or Jeff Kripal stand outside that and and somehow have the truth and we're like telling our readers what the truth is. It's like, no, we're all in that. And we're we're just like you. Um so I yeah, it. I think writing in particular <clears throat> is very much about authorizing other people and <clears throat> telling them that they're not as they're not as strange as they thought they were. There's a place for them in the world. I mean, this is the X Men mythology again. This, this is why I just love I love the mythology. I <laughs> I, I always love it when Mitch calls me Professor mm -hmm. X because it, it, it fits it fits into my my myth. It's it's my self understanding. It's like yeah, that's pretty much what You're I like, do. That's me. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nietzsche said, I'm the soul of all souls, or whatever he said. You're like, I'm Professor X. Way cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Nietzsche, uh, oh, God, let's not go back to Nietzsche. I'll just start laughing and, and, <laughs> and liking it again. <laughs> yeah, I was reading some of the stuff. And in the way, um, if you guys listening are going to read this book, um, it there's a lot of um, information in it. But the way that Jeff writes the superhumanities books and all of his books that I've read so far, um, he has like this sense of humor that's interwoven with it. So it'll be like super serious. And then you'll start laughing because you'll say something like it's kind of like a low key, you know, like joke towards whatever you just wrote about or leading into the next or it's like super, something super thought provoking, like leading you into the next chapter. And that's one of your writing that's something about your writing that i really enjoy is like it's not just like end chapter next chapter <laughs> you know it's it's like you you have like a paragraph at the end of each chapter that really like incur it's like almost like you're you're guiding us through this book so that's it's not going to be 
it's not going to be just reading for information because there is a lot of history in it. And I love that, but it's, it's actually a journey when you're reading um, Jeff's books, guys. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, Professor X books. I'm sorry, <laughs> <laughs> but now I don't even know where we were. So <laughs> um, let me see what I have on my questions here. Um, you wrote, um, okay. So the, the, the analogy of the chessboard at mm. one of your, in the book, you said there's this thought and it says focus that gaze down, always down around is fine too, but never up. Um, so what does that mean to you? Um, cause you refer to the chessboard and yeah. certain thought processes that can make you kind of see the chessboard from above and some of it that just bind you to this chess piece yeah. that you might be and this is all you're allowed to move and all that yeah so I, the chessboard analogy i i once debated um an evangelical intellectual at my university and um i really enjoyed that it was it was i've actually debated evangelical authors and intellectuals on different occasions and i've always really um found that moving um when i have students the kids that I, I think I like the best of students are either really serious religious people or they're really committed secular atheists. And I, I like those. I love those kids because they've got skin in the game, you know, to use a metaphor. They, they care. The, the kids that I, I can't work with are the kids that don't care. Um, and so the chess game, it goes back to this debate, actually, with the, the evangelicals. And it goes back to my own training in the study of religion. And essentially, it goes like this, that if you think about a chessboard, <clears throat> there are a set of black pieces and there are a set of white pieces, and it's a kind of zero-sum game. Someone's going to win, someone's going to lose. Maybe there's a draw, but but ultimately, if you play enough games, someone's going to win and someone's going to lose. And there's just two dimensions. You can just move the pieces around in two dimensions. Well, there is this third dimension, and the players, of course, exist in this third dimension, and they're looking down on the chessboard, and what I said to the religious believers was, look, you think you're one of the pieces on the board. You, you believe this religious game. You know, it's either this religion is true or that religion is true. Somebody's going to win. Someone's going to lose. And so you're setting the world up for conflict and violence. And what if we don't want to play that game anymore? You know, what if we just see that it's a game? You, we made the rules up. Um, Let's so so let's lift off this chessboard and let's not see everything as a as a, a zero sum game as as a literally a black and white battle, but let's see this this third dimension where people are actually playing this game and we may want to play some other game. We want to be somebody different. And so I use that metaphor through the whole book because I think academics are stuck on the chessboard, just like um, a non-academic people are. Um, we're all stuck. We're, we're all kind of, we all think in black and white and, and win or lose. And I, <laughs> I just don't think that's the game we should be playing at the, you know, in the future. I think we need to play a different game. That's very freeing um, because a lot of conflict within people's minds and in their life comes from not adhering to um, the chess piece they feel they were assigned to or told to be. Yeah. Um, so me, for example, um, raised Catholics, saw UFO when I was five, and then all sorts of paranormal stuff because my grandma was a medium. I had the gift too. So just weird stuff all the time. 
I wasn't able to like conform to what I was being told in Catholic school. It didn't make sense anymore yeah. after that experience. Yeah. And so the conflict of that is, you know, where, like, what are you supposed to believe? Because there's people have, people have like you, these beliefs, like they know when they go to church that this is the truth, you know, like the evangelical minister possibly, right? Like they, they have this solid thing. And they just slip into that role and they're fine. But some of us aren't okay with that. Some of us are not okay with saying, I'm only allowed to move diagonal diagonally. I want to move up or I want to jump or, you know. So I think that um, it's important to remember that you're not bound to the piece that you feel you're assigned to. And people all around you that um, whatever your role is in life, there's probably been a point where you've felt like you had to play that role forever. Well, let me let me comment on your own life, Priscilla, and then and then kind of blow it out into the the, the global or the political world. I mean, so your your experiences are exactly what I was trying to talk about. That I think what a paranormal event is is pushing someone out of a worldview. I, I, I really I really do see that that's the kind of goal or purpose of these things. I you know I grew up Catholic. Uh, in some sense, I'm very much still Catholic. I think we always are what we were, you know, what we grew up with. You can't leave it behind, and I, I don't want to. But, you know, a lot of my, a, a lot of my um, family members and certainly a lot of Catholics believe what they believe, but they don't really believe it, by the way. I don't, I don't think people really believe what they say they believe. I, I feel like when I, I would meet these Christians, even in high school, and I'd be walking around with my satanic Bible in my backpack, I was a weirdo, guys. And, you know, like, just, I was kind of jealous because they seemed like this is the word. But do you think they really, you know? I mean, I, I think religion is mostly about faking it until you make it. I, 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 think it's, I think it's mostly a set of rituals where people say they believe A, B, and C, but they actually don't if you really... If you really push them on it, so yeah. I I think people are really aware of this. Um, and then to speak kind of to blow this up into a global or a political thing, you know, I often will say things like, you know, you don't get Jewish Muslim violence in the Middle East or or Hindu Muslim violence in India or or uh, you know American, frankly, uh, left right violence in the U.S. unless you have Hindus and Muslims and Jews and Christians and you know you need these identities to like have these fights and I'm like well what if what if none of those identities are true I mean I mean what if there's no such thing as a as a Russian or a Ukrainian that, that that's a, just a historical construction or there's really no such thing as an American or a Mexican or a, a British person I mean I know there is on a historical level I know we inhabit those roles but folks their roles they they have they have been constructed over long periods of time and we are actually none of those things and and our violences and our politics and our our our, uh, our economic everything's dependent on those roles so so the, i guess what i'm trying to say is something far more radical than people realize i'm not just talking about uh ufo's and um telepathic or, or near death experiences i'm talking about politics and, and ethics and who we are as a species. Um, and I think, by the way, I mean, Priscilla, this will take us far into the future, but I think with climate change and human migration, and I, I think a lot of our nation state uh, imaginations are going to have to be reimagined, 
frankly, because people are going to be moving around the globe because they have to. People, people, people become immigrants not because they want to. They become immigrants because they're trying to protect their children and they're trying to find a better life. And our whole idea of borders and nation states, it's just not going to work in the future. It's, it's, or it's going to get really violent. Yeah. Which we've seen a little touch of that, right, on the borders yeah. here in Mexico and other places, like people handing their babies over the fence, like babies, guys. Like <laughs> people, people are immigrants because they love their families. They are not immigrants because they're evil people. And um, I think that's a really hard thing to hear, but that is true. And uh, I, I just. Once you come to a conclusion that you know you're no different than the people who are trying to get across the border, you suddenly think differently about everything. And I I don't know I don't know how else to say that. Um, and I, I I I love my children too. I'm sure you do too, Priscilla. You know I everybody does though. <laughs> it's no it's no different. Those people aren't any different. They're yeah. the same. They're the same as us. And I have no arguments with that. That's how I've thought about it. Yeah. Um, you know, just living in Arizona, that's always been a topic when yeah. I was, that's where I'm from. So yeah. yeah, that's always been a topic. And I think that people dehumanize that. And it, it goes to the whole thing. Well, people want aliens to come and interdimensional beings to show up to prove their experiences or to prove what's been, everybody's been hiding from them. But it's, it's like that movie district nine. Like if something did show up, will we stick every, them in a camp? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, it's, are we, that's that's what's absolutely scary about humanity is the dehumanization of one another because of uh, differences well, in borders. Well, you know what the word alien meant, you know, 100 years ago was immigrant. Right. And that's what I try to tell people like in but everybody is stuck on whatever their first experience with the word alien is. It's hard for people to relearn words. Uh, so I'm not saying that. Um, in a mean way or in a demeaning way, but you have to question, like, I was told this was this. Is that really what it is, you know? Yeah. Um, we are coming up on the hour. Do you have time for a few questions? I do, actually. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm good. Okay. I'm good. So, guys, if you ask more than one question, I'm going to go one by one, but I'm not going to ask, like, both your questions, and then if we have time, we'll get to your second question. Um, John was the first one to ask a question, and his question, and I'll just put it up here, is, what is your take on Peterson's early work in which he identified the structure of perception with mythology? Given your emphasis on story, do you think that he was get what he was getting at was correct? <clears throat> um, yeah, I do. Um, I mean, I assume this is John, <laughs> John Allison. I don't, I don't, I don't mean, I don't, it, and the name's right there. So maybe, maybe, it <laughs> um, I don't know Jordan Peterson's work. I don't um, pretend to speak about him or on him. But this notion that perception is informed by mythology is is a Jungian conviction. It, it's not. It's not Jordan Peterson. It goes back to Jung and probably goes back earlier than that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think our mythologies run very deep. And by mythology, I don't mean believing in gods or goddesses or fairies or something. I mean believing that you're an individual and that you belong to a particular political or, or national community is a mythology. It's a story that you're living inside of. And I think those stories, um, 
both shape our perceptions of the world, they shape our perceptions of, of each other for sure, but they also limit what we can see. Um, so I think something like scientific materialism, for example, is a mythology, it's a story, and it prevents us from seeing and saying things that are pretty obvious, actually. Um, so yeah, John, I, I mean, just yes, I think, I think <laughs> that's essentially correct. And um, I'm going to ask one of, well, I'm going to get to James' comment before that. Um, James, Jeff is always rocking the best shirts. So <laughs> and it's true. So <laughs> it's, I, I'm not a particularly attractive person. So I have to wear something that's attractive. <laughs> you didn't succumb to the cardigan, the professor look. <laughs> I used, to, I, my story I always tell is, James, is I used to wear ties. I used to wear really silly fancy ties because <laughs> it was you know it, it 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 impressed the students and it gave me a sense of authority uh but when you live in texas you can't you can't uh, you can't wear yeah. ties it's just too hot it's just too hot oh my goodness yeah and you guys get humidity there too yeah so this is nathan asked a few questions but i like this one i want this one asked first um and we might not have time for the other one. Um, he asks, why isn't the academy good at inter interdisciplinary and the cross-pollination of ideas? How can we move towards the X version? <clears throat> so I think the academy uh, is getting better at interdisciplinarity and what, what you're calling the cross-pollination of ideas. The disciplines are, are morphing. They're morphing right now. Like if, just to, to speak as an associate dean, Fields like the medical humanities, which is essentially about training young um, pre-med students in things like philosophy and ethics and literature, or the environmental humanities, which is trying to look at the, the historical and philosophical and religious aspects of, of climate change, are really where students are, are going now. And I think it's where, where institutions and universities will eventually go. I think a lot of our departments a lot of our traditional orders of knowledge, philosophy, religion, literature, you know, these kinds of things will, will morph now, will, will, will morph as they've always morphed. You know, things have always changed and I think they'll continue to change. So how do we move towards the X version of that? I mean, the X version is, you know, putting a, a, a vertical aspect in all of that. I, I think that's gonna be hard. And I and I acknowledge that in the book. I and I'm not sure we can move in that direction. I'm not convinced of that. Um, there's a kind of esoteric aspect to all of this, by which I don't mean I have a secret and I'm not going to tell you what it is. I mean, even if you spoke the truth to people, they're not going to hear you. You know, they're going to continue to assume their believe their beliefs and assume their convictions. So maybe this takes something more than just talking you know maybe it takes a crisis or a set of ideas that or a set of experiences that people either either um, have or they don't have I, so i i personally find that comforting um because it it explains to me why people don't listen to me <laughs> uh, you know and and this is an old this is an old pattern by the way you know this is yeah, a really sure. really old pattern that you know, my our, our good friend, the Jewish rabbi, Jesus used to say, you know, let those who have ears hear. And of course, what he meant by that is most people don't have ears to hear. <laughs> they're not gonna they're not gonna get this. So let me let me speak in parables. Let me speak to you in in, in stories that you're not gonna understand. 
Because <laughs> you're not going to listen anyway. If you yeah, do. you're not going to hear me. You're probably going to kill me, by the way. And of course, that's oh, what oh, that's yeah, what you have did, a whole um, you have a whole section on there on like the role of Christianity in there. When I say in there, I mean in your book um, on Jesus and um, read it, guys. It's really good. It might um, it could be uh, a little controversial, but I like that. So just be ready to think if you read this book, um, if you're not familiar with Jeff's work because it's going to have you questioning um, in the best way possible. And you also talk about the term of, es of you know, the esoteric in there as well, and it not meaning like, oh, I know the secret, and you don't. So you have to read the book to get more in depth in that. Um, one more question before we start closing out. Um, and this is, he says he's dying to ask you, so I have to ask it. Um, if you were going to edit an anthology called Philosophy for Post-Disclosure, <laughs> what work would you include? Yeah, that's oh, on the fly too, huh? <laughs> that's that's like a heavy question. Um, you know, I think there are a lot, David. There are a lot of people doing this today. Um, first of all, I'm not. Let me let me say something about the disclosure movement, and I don't see David um, signing his name to this. Um, disclosure implies that somebody knows the secret right? Somebody, somebody in the government or the military knows what, what's going on and they're going to disclose it or it's going to be leaked. I actually don't think anybody knows. And I think the last people in the world who are going to understand this are actually politicians or military people. And I, and I don't say that as a, as a mean critique. I just think that's, that's the wrong, that's the wrong way to, to think about this and to go about this. So post disclosure, maybe in the sense of abandoning this notion of disclosure and recognizing that we we actually have no idea of what's going on here, um, I think is very healthy. Who would I put in such a book? Um, that's a good question. Um, I, would, I would put a lot of the people that I'm sure have showed up on this show in that book who are trying to work with these questions. Uh, I know you want names. Um, I think a lot of Diana Pasolka's work is in this this zone. Um, I think a lot of Stephen Finley's work is in this zone, works on African-American religions. I think, um, I think there are historians and scholars of religion who are working in this zone. Um, that'll get a bit nerdy there, but I, I, I really do think there are people who, who are asking these questions today. Um, so I'm, first of all, I would never edit such a book. <laughs> I, I have too many things to do, but, but I, I would certainly encourage that someone, someone create such a book. Yeah, well, there you go, David. Looks like you got to go write a book now. <laughs> <laughs> or edit one. Or Yeah, right, edit one. Um, so I would like to kind of close on this last thing. I have a million more questions, of course, but um, we could talk about this. This book is so deep and... Um, you could talk about it forever, I'm sure, with all the questions. But um, you had brought up um, this concept of Doctor Strange and when he kills the Ancient One mm -hmm. and he appears everywhere yeah. um, after that. Um, what? How does that relate to to like what super, super humanities is and reality and how we end up after we leave and well, I use Doctor Strange 
in the 60s and mostly the 70s to talk about this dual aspect monism that I'm trying to play with and articulate. And I also like to use popular culture, as you know, Priscilla, to talk about ideas. And essentially what happens is the people who were creating that comic were also taking psychedelics, by the way, and they were having these mystical states that they were then weaving into, of all things, a comic book. I mean, comic, comic books were seedy, kind of inappropriate, kind of marginal literature in the 60s and 70s. I mean, I remember, I, I mean, know this because I was a kid then, and we bought them in drugstores. <laughs> so, I mean, they were like drugs. They were like, they were like drugs for 10-year-olds, and mostly boys, by the way. Let's, let's be clear. And Doctor Strange was the trippiest, in some ways the most psychedelic of, of these characters. And so in the book, in the Superhumanities Now, I talk about this particular Doctor Strange scene where he actually kills the Ancient One by accident, but he also ends up removing the, the subject or the ego that is the Ancient One. And the Ancient One speaks from this rock and this, this pond and this tree, and he says, you know, I'm everything now. When you when you removed my sense of self, you didn't kill me. You just you just killed my my limited sense of who I was. And now I realize that I'm actually everything. And for me, that's a, like that's essentially a a modern expression of of the mystical experience of of oneness and and removing the ego or the subject. Um, it's also very environmental, Priscilla, because. The ancient one speaks through the trees and the, the rocks and, and the water. He, he doesn't speak through a god or a, a, a religious figure. He speaks through the natural world. And so I'm trying to get, I'm trying to argue that these these states are actually really relevant, and they might show up in in inappropriate um, comic books for kids in drugstores in the 70s. But they they're written actually by people who are having these states and who are taking these psychoactive molecules and who are who actually think and believe believe this, who actually are, know this. I shouldn't say believe. They know this because they've been in these states. And so, again, I'm trying to communicate the superhumanities through through a superhero, in this case, a medical doctor, by the way, uh, who became a, a master of, of the occult arts uh, through, through an accident, by the way, through a horrible accident. Um, so it's it's about all those things. Yeah, that um, Doctor Strange has a lot of, I would say, like secrets in it, or you know, it has a lot of insight. And because of the creators of even his original stories, I mean, the psychedelics have they open it opens people. You can't deny it. And I love how you end when you're talking about that. You kind of your segue into the next part of your book is: Can you hear the ancient one, or does the yellowed comic book or the psychedelics behind it? or the tired trope of another yet dead German man get in your moral way. I loved that. The <laughs> like that's your like you're like gently it's like you're provoking your reader but in a cool way. Not in yeah. a, you know, It's just like come on, think about it. <laughs> yeah. But yes, um so we are at the hour. I don't want to take up too much of your morning. I'm sorry I didn't get to everybody's questions. Um is there anything you would like to talk about? as far as the book goes that you didn't get to talk about or that I didn't ask about? I know there's a lot in there. Yeah, I mean, obviously, obviously there's a lot in there. I <laughs> listen, I said what I had to say in the book, Priscilla. I, yeah, get the I book. mean, <laughs> I, it's me blabbing on the page, but also not blabbing, but 
but trying to articulate a different vision of what higher education can be. And I, I guess I would end with this. You know, the book begins in my library, and not this one, by the way, but the one, the one at the university. And essentially what I say is, look, this book is not about me. It's not about any particular specialty or expertise I'm going to pretend on a particular. It's actually about all expertises and all of these books. It's about the field as a whole. It's about people in a, in a much broader sense. And so I would end by saying that if, if there's a future to the superhumanities, and by the way, there may not be, it may, it may wilt on the vine or, 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 or die quickly like so many other things. Um, it's because of young people. It's because of people picking it, the idea up and running with it in different ways. And that might be in the academy. It might be in a movie theater. It might be in a, a novel. It might be in a community. It might, it, I, I, I don't pretend to know, Priscilla. It might be on a podcast of all places. You know, I, I don't pretend to understand or, or predict where the superhumanities might, might pop up. But if it's going to pop up, it's not going to be because of a book or a professor. It's going to be because of people reading and thinking and, and dreaming and, and creating a different future. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, get the book, everybody. Um, I have Jeff's link in the description, and I believe I have the Amazon link. If not, I will add it. Um, this is what it looks like. Pre, um, and it's it's a great book. You you definitely want to read it and give yourself time to like digest different parts of it um, because it's going to make you think. If you've never read any of Jeff's books, um, again, he has this way of just making you question more um, in, in a good way. So <laughs> like you said, there's no answers in here, only um, you cite so many amazing philosophers and thinkers and you get into the politics of it and and th it's like no holds barred in there. I love it. Um, and that's how most of your writing is also. So um, can you hang out for a minute afterwards? Yeah. I'm say bye to yes. everybody. Thank sure. you so much to everybody in the chat. Um, I saw a lot of people joined in the middle, but I don't like to interrupt my guests. So um, Laura, I see Jay, James, Diesel Girl, everybody that's in the chat, thank you so much for showing up. You're appreciated. I'm sorry if I didn't get to everybody's questions. Um, you know, an hour is such a short time to discuss like a, a, a book in general, and then also um, to pick your mind, James, uh, Jeff is like one question we could probably nerd out on forever. <laughs> but today we talked about X-Men. <laughs> superhumanities and um we were kind of all over the place the politics in the world and we and i mean that in the best way possible so if you're listening to this please um leave your feedback like share subscribe all that stuff next week on thursday i have mitch horowitz coming on kind of midday oh, um oh. 11 a.m so say um, hi to mitch for me i will if you're a fan of um jeff you definitely will run into mitch's work at some point in one way or another because that's how it happened for me I was reading Jeff and then Mitch popped on the radar and then I went down the occult rabbit hole and, <laughs> and, and you're also going to be in New York um, in December. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to get to meet you in person. Oh, you're going to be there. Yeah, I'm going to be there. All um, right. Jay's invited um, Kelly from UFO rabbit hole and I to co-host along with him and James. So okay. um, it's going to be exciting. There's going to be a lot of great speakers there. Um, make sure you check that out. Link is in my link tree. Yes, Luke Tree. I'm like, where did I put that link? But thank you so much for coming on, Jeff, and thanks for joining everybody.
and enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thanks.